Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today I have another first-time guest, Sam. Hey. Uh, Sam, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Oh yeah, so uh, I'm a queer anarchist from a server that I share with Rye. You can find me at MathmanSam on Twitter if for some bizarre reason you want to. Hey, give him a follow. I know your name is Mathman Sam. Did you like study math in college? I didn't. I didn't even ever like find that out from you. Yeah, yeah, that's what my honors is in. Okay, what did you like have a specialty field? Uh, mostly algebra. Okay, I'm currently writing my thesis on uh, something called gradings on matrix algebras. Cool. All right. So broadly useless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like no math is use- like really useful after algebra. Really. <laughs> Maybe calculus. Some of it gets more useful. It just takes a while. <laughs> yeah. I like. I probably say this too much, but I always say math is for computers. A lot of it is. A I, lot of it is. I, I have a job where there's a lot of math involved, and I'm really bad at math and never actually do it, but I make the computer do it, and I'm really good at that. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. So this is the second part of the Seeing Like a State book club series. So we're covering chapter two for this episode. If you haven't listened to chapter one, you probably don't have to, uh, but I would recommend it. Scott, I think, does a pretty decent job of referring back to earlier information and building on it throughout the book. Yeah, he really does. Um, it's a good text. Yeah, but I think most of the stuff he refers back to here is within the chapter. He, he talks about like the the forestry stuff and the normal bounds a little bit. And he talks about the measurements and cadastral mapping a little bit, but it's mostly a fairly self-contained chapter. Yeah. Um, so uh, the first little subsection of the chapter is about cities. And one of the first things in there is that, that really cool map of Bruges from, is it from 1500? Yeah. Painting of Bruges circa 1500. And uh, I like, I don't know about you, but I think it looks like, like a cell or something like a cell diagram. A lot of old European cities do, right? Especially before they got into the whole trying to make them more legible. So anyway, he has the painting there and points out that, you know, these older cities had layouts that were very chaotic. They were kind of just like a slipshod kind of uh mess of streets with no particular angles to their intersections or any particular planning to their streets it was just like the way that people use the city kind of determined how it was laid out exactly but of course now you know if you look at modern cities they are the opposite they're like some psychopath that wants to control reality lays out a huge grid of streets with perfect 90 degree intersections you number them going from like first street all the way to like 497th and then you do the same for the avenues <laughs> yep right so you can tell exactly where anything is yep i think i live near one of the only exceptional cities which is washington dc which i don't know if this is true but it's like a what's it called apocryphal uh fact something like that yeah that um it was built to like resist invasion so the street layout, there is like sort of a grid, you know, there's like a grid between the main streets, but other than that, it's like, there's like a bunch of hexagonal and pentagonal intersections. Um, and it's very hard to get around. 
be interesting if that was true. Yeah, it, it's very hard to get around the city if you don't if if you're not from here, and even if you are from here and you don't drive in the city much, it's still hard to get around. Um, yeah, you need a GPS or something. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, if you if you didn't grow up using a GPS, you could probably get around without it. Um, and like, I can get to certain places without a GPS. Like, um, my old co-host lived in um, what's it called, Petworth, and I was able to get to his house without using the GPS. But only after I had driven there like ten times. Um, and even then, there were some times where I was like, "Is this this is where I'm supposed to turn? Right? Is this where I'm supposed to turn? I don't know. It looks weird." <laughs> Do you live in a city with a grid street pattern? Oh, sweet Lord, no. I live in one of the oldest cities in uh, North America. So Interesting. we have some really just, especially downtown. I think at one point we tried to turn one intersection into a roundabout or one system of intersections into a roundabout and, and then back again at some point, And there were like five crashes each time. <laughs> And it's just like, pick one. Because it, it, it's like, I think four or five intersections all within like, I want to say 50 feet of each other. Wow. Right? It's, and like, it's a very hilly city. So there are lots. So like some of these intersections are, well, not at this place, but other places in downtown, there are intersections where you have, I think around a, I want to say like a 30 to 45 degree angle going up into the intersection. <laughs> City was not designed for cars. That's fun. So yeah, he, he uh, starts talking about the, like the post enlightenment cities where, you know, either through intentional demolition or um, just sort of like building on top of the old cities. Uh, City started taking on this grid street pattern. Um, and then, one of the main reasons for this was uh, for cities like um, unfamiliar rural areas, you would need like a local guide to get you around. So it was very hard for uh, police to come in and start policing the city or for administrators to find specific people, um, even if they had like the general area that they lived in or like, you know, a specific description of the area they lived in. Because, of course, this yeah. was before like numbered addresses. Yeah, it made all sorts of bureaucracy really hard, whether you're a bureaucrat with or without a club. Scott points out that many anti-state actions were greatly aided by the legibility of cities. And uh, he also points to U.S. inner cities, which that's the term he used. I think that's more of a dog whistle than like a real term because I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's like inner. <laughs> I think Urban they just mean the black areas of cities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, as a point, though, about that, um, the Stonewall Rebellion was really aided by uh, the fact that the sort of queer community there was much more, uh, knew the area much better than the police did. Nice. Right. And so uh, there's a couple working class history episodes on that that I would recommend. Cool. <laughs> I say as I plug another podcast on your <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um <laughs> So yeah, he he compares it to the you know black areas of cities, um, like he says Upper Manhattan. I think that's later. So in response to that, politicians tried to create community policing, which uh, probably most people know that as a solution that liberals brought up to 
you know, the executions of black men by police. Um, but they created it earlier uh, as a way to create a cadre of local police who are intimately familiar with the physical layout of the community and especially the local population, as he says. Um, and I think another comparison to today would be like uh, post-war suburbs in the U.S. They have a you know cul-de-sac street layout and it's just completely illegible to outsiders unless you have GPS. Um, to give an example, I used to live in Burke, Virginia. And if I were to describe where my house was to someone who lived there, I would just say, oh, I live right around Dead Man's Curve. And you take the first right. Um, and anyone who lived there would know exactly where that is. Uh, but if my parents or my roommate's friends came to visit, which they did at one point when we lived there, uh, it was a total nightmare because I would say, oh, we live off of Burke Road. The only problem with that is there are three Burke Roads that are connected to Burke Lake Road, <laughs> parallel to Burke Center Parkway, attached to Old Burke Road, and they're also near Burke View Avenue, Burke View Court, and Burke Town Court. Um, and so my roommate's friends, when they were coming to visit, called uh, called him and they said they were lost and they were on some Burke Road, but they weren't sure which one it was. <laughs> oh, sweet Lord. <laughs> so uh, it was very so, difficult. <laughs> so what I'm getting is th- that the city of Burke, Virginia, really just likes the philosopher Edmund Burke. It's possible. I mean, there is um, there's a Euclid Avenue nearby and... Uh, there is, I think, a Tesla court in Burke. There's there's actually several uh, streets named after scientists around there. Well, that's kind of cool, though. Kind of cool. Also kind of nerdy. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, and uh, another thought I had about this was like, I mean, I guess it doesn't apply as much because the police are pretty much on the side of like the insurrectionaries of the u.s today but they do live mostly in the suburbs which if the police were against them would make it probably a little more difficult to control them um although that's offset by you know gps and it's offset by gps and i would also say it's offset by the fact that suburbs even though they're complicated they have wide open roads that's right and distance between the houses and so if you're talking about like a form of engagement there certain techniques are that that can be used on those sort of wide streeted roads that uh scott talks about can still be used in uh suburbs Mm -hmm. it is though um you know if you're fleeing the cops on foot it's not impossible to outrun them in a suburb because you can cut through people's yards and cars can't um, you can True. cover quite a quite a lot of distance that a car couldn't. Like uh, right where I live right now is right off of a huge main road that has a ton of traffic on it. Um, and right across that, there's another subdivision. And my friend used to live there. And in terms of distance, it's like a quarter mile away. But in terms of driving distance, it's like two and a half miles. <laughs> so, yeah. And I had another couple differences from then and now that would prevent these illegible places from becoming more insurrectionary. There's what you already yeah. pointed out. Um, 
And also, obviously, the post-war suburbs are historically occupied by middle-class white people, uh, which is changing, but pretty slowly. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is because of gentrification, making cities too expensive to live in. Um, some people are being pushed out into the suburbs. I know that's happening around here. Also, um, isn't redlining much more uh, like isn't redlining much more difficult nowadays than it was historically? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the explicit practice of redlining would be illegal, but um, I think that's offset somewhat by like credit scores and that sort of thing, where there's yeah, just sort enough. of a de facto True. form of segregation. Um, yeah. Uh, the other stuff I had on here was uh, markets used to be like, you know, kind of common areas in cities, uh, but now they're basically just owned and operated by highly centralized state organs like Walmart, A-Hold, Del Hayes which owns like giant and food line and all those places. Um, Amazon, uh, whoever owns malls, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, also the widespread belief in civic religion, uh, the promise of advancement to the middle or upper class and like generally, um, buying off of the lower class with consumption goods and minor quality of life concessions. This is why I was asking about this term (laughs) on the server. Um, yeah, we, we figured out was inducements, uh, w- was yep. the right word. Although I still like, uh, palliatives or palliation. That one's good. Um, bread and circuses is also good, but can't be made into a verb. That was the only problem I had with it. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to make a three word thing into a single verb. Bread, bread and cir- his circumcision. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then I the last do thing I think that would work. <laughs> uh, the last thing I had was uh, much more numerous and powerful police. I think police were like kind of minor in the past compared to today. Well, and also the police just have more tools provided by greater legibility. Yeah. And um, greater mechanization and, you know, weapons technology and all that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. And in, in, in the end notes here is where uh, Scott notes that certain parts of Upper Manhattan are essentially ungoverned and dangerous, uh, which sounded kind of white. But also, I think this book was written in 1998. And I think that has changed to quite a degree um, because of gentrification, because like uh, the gentrification of New York City, as I understand, it, has moved very quickly in the past like two decades. That is also kind of white. Because, well, when I say white, I should say white middle class, right? Yeah. Like that worry about dangerous parts of the city. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, because there's, there's a region in the city where I am called Rabbit Town, which has a reputation of being slightly more, or yeah, being more dangerous than uh, than the rest of the city, even though the population is still mostly white, right? Because we don't really have any large groups of minority populations here yeah i mean part of the the danger thing is definitely over policing which causes over reporting um there is like a small grain of truth to it where um a population that's like collectively traumatized is like more like sensitive to provocation um they they do have like problems that can cause like danger but yeah it's definitely like an overstatement to say that they're like that dangerous 
I don't know. And, um, and, so, and the point of being, uh, as you have in the notes, essentially ungoverned and dangerous is a bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, so after this, he goes into some pretty close detail about the reconstruction of Paris by George Eugene Hausman or Hausman, right uh, which happened during the reign of Napoleon III between 1853 and 1870. Uh, he uses kind of a nuanced analysis here, um, which you know I think is the least cool type of analysis. Um, and he points out that there were, like, despite this reconstruction being like very destructive to the existing city and the population that lived there. Uh, it also had some benefits for them because the straighter roads and improved aqueducts and sewage system that came about through the reconstruction lowered the spread of disease caused by a lack of access to fresh water, the lack of waste removal and lack of sunlight. Um, but on the other hand, in order to reconstruct the city, Numerous lower cl class residents were displaced from their homes, so the buildings could be bulldozed and new construction could be put on top of it. Um, and one interesting aside that he had in here um, was this practice of like bulldozing something in order to build over it actually came from the construction of military encampments where they would like clear cut part of the forest or whatever they were going to. Uh, in order to have like a fresh level ground to build their encampment yeah. on top of. And the encampments were also highly, highly legible because every single Roman, because I believe this is about the Roman encampments, right? Possibly. I didn't, I don't remember that specific beam I up here. Right. I think it was, I think it was about the Roman encampments. And the big thing with the Roman encampments is that they were uh, very much. So every single one looked like every single other one. So that if you were a soldier, coming into an encampment you knew where everything was but yeah he he does point out that you know the, this practice of like bulldozing came about before the actual machine the bulldozer existed which i thought was an interesting point so i guess they must have just used you said it happened before the invention of the bulldozer oh yeah so i guess they must have just used hammers and stuff yeah i'm sure they used like hammers axes saws all that stuff i know for like um, for like old styles of military encampments, they, you know, cut trees and then like basically cut them into like stakes to make fences. Yeah, so, so they can put a, a barricade around of, it. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of calor. What, what did you you've called it like caloric, caloric effort or caloric work to do this? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Muscle power, and so yeah. Uh, back to the reconstruction. Um. Yes. In order to reconstruct the city, numerous lower class residents were. Did I already say this? Uh, numerous yeah. lower class residents were displaced from their homes, so the buildings could be bulldozed and new construction could be put on top of it. Um, there were also suburbs around the city that were full of insurrectionary pockets, uh, which were annexed and made part of the city. Um, and this actually still happens today. Um, I know in Texas, a lot of cities have grown by annexing the suburbs around them. And there's actually like um, people that make a, like a left wing case to do that because um, some like suburbs around cities own a bunch of the land in the city, but they don't uh, like pay taxes to the city and, you know, things sort of similar to that, like 
to do with local politics. There are like left leaning people who will make the case that cities should annex the land around them. Um, which is kind of interesting. I don't know what the right answer is on that. <laughs> yeah, it seems it seems kind of complicated and very, very much so down to local conditions. Yeah. Uh, so in Paris, the narrow, chaotic streets were replaced with straight, wide boulevards. And uh, in the end notes, there's a bit about uh, Parisians mocking Napoleon and Houseman for their obsession with straight lines saying that one day they will even straighten the Seine since its uh, irregular curves are quite shocking, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> oh, God. Just just wait till you get to Le Corbusier later in the book. Oh, yeah. It's pretty clear that he just wants to fuck geometry. Okay. And so it wasn't only the shape of the streets that changed to like with the intent of controlling the unruly proletariat, but their like position as well. Uh, so I have a, like a block quote here. Uh, as Houseman saw it, his new roads would ensure multiple direct rail and road links between each district of the city and the military units responsible for order there. Oh, I put miliary. Uh, thus, for example, new boulevards in northeastern Paris allowed troops to rush from the Corbevois barracks of the Bastille and then to subdue the turbulent Faubourg Saint-Antoine. Many of the new rail lines and stations were located with similar strategic goals in mind. Where possible, insurrectionary quartiers were demolished or broken up by new roads, public spaces, and commercial development. Explaining the need for a loan of 50 million francs for uh, to begin the work, Leon Fauché emphasized state, st state security needs. The interests of public order, no less than those of salubrity, demand that a wide swath be cut as soon as possible across this district of barricades. It's interesting. Uh, just at the start of that quote, where it's direct rail and road links between each district of the city and the military units responsible for order there. Because that seems to imply that like different districts had different military units assigned to them. Yeah, I guess they must have. Which to me seems interesting, because that's, that's more, it's sort of not just the legibility, that's also putting force behind it. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's a, a point that way. hasn't really been made very much yet was is like that ultimately all this stuff relies on state force to back up. He yeah. talks about it a little bit, I think, but um there's a good reason that the wizard can continue to uh produce money and it's because if you look around behind him there is a man with a gun. Right. Quote Graber. Oh, okay. Um Another thing that I think is interesting about this is like this was applied in the U.S. quite a bit, like with the construction of the interstate system. Um, a lot of right. the locations of the highways were chosen to go straight through the like the middle of black neighborhoods to divide them in half. As well as the fact that it was originally produced for military efficiency because of the right. fear of communist invasion. Sorry, air quotes communist invasion. Yeah, the justification. I that I heard when I was in school was uh, to move ICBMs around quickly, which I don't, now that I think about that, it doesn't make sense. Cause the whole point is like there are missiles that can fly anywhere on earth. <laughs> I don't know why you would have to move them. <laughs> it it might've been for small, maybe for smaller nukes. I don't know. I think, but I think it's probably just for military vehicles in general. Yeah. yeah. Cause I do actually, I don't know about you. I do see, 
tanks on the road fairly regularly uh, when I'm like traveling on I-95. I live on an island. It wouldn't make oh, much okay. sense for uh, tanks around here. That's but I do true. see the military on occasion because there well, what is about a hovercraft. <laughs> I, I have a funny feeling that hovercrafts do not have much military potential. They do. <laughs> the Marines oh, they use do? them. <laughs> yeah. Ah. It's not like a like a sci-fi hovercraft. It's like a wing and yeah, ground effect yeah. type of hovercraft. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that if you puncture the the skirt, then it probably won't work. Would be my only thought. Probably true, but uh, there's probably guys shooting at you um, before you get to it. So I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, so <laughs> let's move on. Um, so the reconstruction that they did of the roads and everything here uh, segregated the city by class and function into the modern uh, Cartier layout that still exists. There's like the the Latin Quarter, the Bohemian Quarter. Um, yeah, the in this sort of spiral in Fran- in Paris, right? Um, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've looked at the map. I I studied there for a month, so I like went to each quarter. Um, okay, yeah. At some point, but uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, like uh, DC is is not like that at all. It's all um, laid out into wards. So there's, I think there's twelve or thirteen wards in DC, and yeah, they just sort of like butt up against each other. There's no like clear boundaries that you could pick out if you didn't know where they are already. And and we should note that these are imposed, right? Like these yeah. are these are imposed from above. They are not emergent properties of oh, all the gay people just live in this one area because community. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um and the the poorer residents were also pushed toward the outer circumference of the city, which is uh like I noted earlier, a process that's familiar to many of us today. Sort of an early version of gentrification. The next section is state enforced naming, which this was one that I had like no idea uh, about before I started reading it. It's I, I think this is very interesting. So, absolutely. Yeah, he talks about naming in. Uh, culture in human cultures is, is complex. There's a lot of different naming systems in you know every different culture, and certain names are considered sacred, and some are like you know personal and uh, that sort of thing. People may have multiple names given to them at one time or during multiple points in their lives. Uh, Golden Kami, which I've been planning to do an episode on it for months, but we haven't gotten to it yet. But it, it will be coming in the future. But uh, Golden Kami explains that. I knew name their babies vulgar terms like shit to ward off evil spirits. And then when they grow up and develop more of a personality, they have a, like a naming ceremony for them to give them a real name. That's like meaningful for, for them um, or particular to their personality. Uh, yeah. So for example, the main character, a Serpa means future, uh, which was chosen because she's supposed to represent like a new type of Ainu woman. Um, and uh, secondary character, Kapashi means boner uh because he's really horny (laughs) Um, well then (laughs) yeah uh but during the meiji restoration uh which i'll actually bring up again later uh i knew we're forced to take japanese names in order to be included in the citizen registry so they have three names throughout their lives at least Uh, um as a 
brief refresher for me, because I don't know my Japanese history that well, uh, Meiji Restoration was the restoration of the monarchy after a shogunate? Yes. So uh, between the Edo period and the you know modern period, I forget what that one's called. It has a special name. But it's uh, yeah. 1868 to 1913, I think. Um, yeah, and it was a major modernization push in Japan. Yeah, they re-centralized the state around the emperor. Um, they sent emissaries to travel around to other modernized states to see what they were like. And they basically copied a lot of what they did uh, to modernize and industrialize Japan. And uh, yeah. th- this was also when they uh, they banned samurai weapons to take away the power of the samurai class. And uh, they, right. they did a bunch of other stuff, too. But yeah, and they, did they abolish the samurai class or did they just turn them into bureaucrats? Um, so I think they abolished it as a class, but I think some of the powerful samurai families became part of the Kazoku. Um, okay. Or not the Kazoku, the something i can't remember the name but it's like the the new upper class basically um okay. they they brought important samurai uh family heads and important officials and landowners and put them into a new upper class and that later included like heads of corporations and stuff like that so okay yeah that makes sense um and scott also uses the example of the movie witness about harrison ford i haven't seen this movie have you no, no, I haven't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Harrison Ford has to find a particular child in an Amish village based on his surname, but they only have a small number of surnames. So he has a hard time. Not super interesting to me because I haven't seen the movie. So I'm sure it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that it's good. I just haven't seen it. Um, So he points out that in much of the world, the question, what is your name makes little sense since people have multiple names depending on the context or the time in their life. Um. It- and to be fair, even in our more quote unquote Western society, there's also a certain level of like, we have nicknames, we have names that we use only with our friends and stuff like that. Right. right. Yeah. I think like, what do I call you is a, a less uh, problematic question, I guess. Yeah. Because yeah. then you're just straight up asking like, what do you want the person to call them? So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um. And so also in the you know modern era, we have last names, which for us is completely normal and nothing we ever think about. But uh, <laughs> it was a state project, which was intended to simplify the location of specific people and the tracing of property inheritance. Oh, a point to make about that tracing of property inheritance and it being passed down through the male line is that that also has to do with enforcing relationships as heteronormative. Yeah. Right. One man, one woman produces a family. Right. Heteronormative and patrilineal, because there are matrilineal societies. But, uh, I, and sorry, when I say heteronormative, I should make clear heteronormative to quote unquote Western. Yeah, I guess would be the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and often the effort to give people surnames was resisted by people who saw it as a ploy to increase uh, burdens of taxes or levies. Which, um, which, to be clear, it was a, a plot to do that. Yes, <laughs> it absolutely was. Yep. Uh, so he talks about Florence and the region of Tuscany uh, attempted an early version of a census called the Catasto in 1427. 
It sought to create records of every state subject and their wealth to assess the finances and military capabilities of the state. So by, you know, having this big registry of every citizen and who was of draftable age, um, they would be able to better deal with, um, you know, expenditures and conflicts that they come up against. Makes yeah, sort total of sense from their perspective. Constantly, and I believe in this point of time, just by the existence of the word Florence, that they there was still a roiling, uh, constant thing of war in the uh, in the sort of Italian balkanized states area. Yeah, I think it was still mostly city states at this point. So studies of the records created in the Catasto uh, appear to show that surnames were actually created by the surveyors rather than being an existing part of society. So most people were just known as like Paolo or uh, uh, Fredo. I don't know. Uh, Erico. That's an Italian name I know. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you needed them to specify who they were, they would be like, oh, I'm Paolo, son of Fredo, son of Erico. Um and they would just go on and on until it was, you know, clear who they were. Um, yeah. But the surveyors gave them family names that were supposed to be inherited through birth. Um, and let's see, sorry. In the end, uh, the Catasto was abandoned due to not only resistance by both commoners and local officials, but also the cost and complexity of carrying it out. And they, um, I don't think they realized at the time or they didn't believe it enough that you know a successful census would actually like increase their revenues and like pay for itself essentially well and Um, also there was there was probably a problem of uh technology too right um it's possible i guess when was the gutenberg press invented oh god (laughs) that's probably the the most crucial technology to creating it was uh the ability to make copies of it to distribute to 1440. all of the... So it would have just been invented a couple years later. Oh, a couple years later, yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, so I, to... I, think, I think forms are probably the most important technology for census taking. Um, yeah. So if they yeah. have to be copied by hand, that's not uh, very practical. Well, and if they have to be copied by hand they also have to be filled in by hand and the illiterate peasant can't do that so you have you have to go there in person which makes resistance a bit easier right yeah and if you if you don't send officials that are familiar with the area and the the people there they could easily just lie you know exactly um but i think it's one of those things where like once it once it starts getting established um as a generational project, it becomes more and more effective because, yes. um, you know, as we'll talk about in a second, people are going to want to um, inherit property, and so they will keep their names. Um, yes, and, and so more and more people start adopting the surnames. Um. Oh, so that's like the very next thing. The use of surnames became more appealing to those outside the state with the creation of, um, by Edward I, I think it's, it was, of uh, copyhold tenure, which was titling of land using an original title held in the local manor and a copy held by the owner of the land. And primogeniture, 
which is the inheritance of property by the firstborn of the family. And it should be noted that property rights are always a state. Uh, property rights are always state enforced. Yes. They can't be any other way. Right. Um, and he has a little aside here that the a peasant uprising called the Watt Tyler Rebellion in 1381 in England uh, followed a decade of widespread registration of subjects and uh, of subjects for the purposes of poll taxes. And oh, in the footnotes about the copyhold and primogeniture thing, he quotes someone I don't remember who exactly, but they said that like uh, like a lowly peasant who was inheriting like a small, tiny little plot of land was as eager to get it as you know a rich man who was inheriting a manor or a county. Yeah, because land was life. Right. Um, and then he starts talking about colonization and how because colonial subjects are subjected to more impersonal bureaucracy and intolerance of rebellion uh, it puts in sharp contrast the practices of establishing permanent surnames Um, so he cites the philippines under spanish rule who were forced to take spanish surnames in 1849 and uh, i'm just going to quote this at length uh governor slash lieutenant general Narciso uh, Narciso Claveria y Saldua had observed as his decree states that Filipinos generally lacked individual surnames, which might distinguish them by families, and that their practice of adopting baptismal names drawn from a small group of saints' names, uh, he he points out in like numerous places that uh, most people had one, like 90% of people had one of six names, uh, which made things very confusing. Uh, this was both in like in the Philippines and in England and anywhere you know Christendom ruled. Uh, people only had a, a handful of names. Um, okay, so resulting in great confusion, the remedy was the catalogo, a compendium of not only personal names but also of nouns and adjectives drawn from flora, fauna, minerals, geography, and the arts and intended to be used by the authorities in assigning permanent inherited surnames. Each local official was to be given a supply of surnames sufficient for his jurisdiction, taking care that the distribution made by the letter by letters of the alphabet. I didn't think that made very much sense, but I sort of get what he, what they're saying and it, it makes yeah, sense. It'd be in like a second. A, oh yeah. 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 In practice, each town was given a number of pages from the alphabetized catalog, uh, producing whole towns with surnames beginning with the same letter. In situations where there has been little in-migration for the past 150 years, the traces of this administrative exercise are still perfectly visible across the landscape. For example, in the Bicol region, the entire alphabet is laid out like a garland over the provinces of Albe, Sorsogon, and Catanduanes, Catanduanes uh, in, which in 1849 belonged to the single jurisdiction of Albe. Beginning with A at the provincial capital, letters B and C mark the towns along the coast beyond Tobacco to Tiwi. We return and trace along the coast of Sorsogon the letters E to L. Then, starting down the Iraya Valley at Daraga with M, we stop with S at Polongui and Libon and finish the alphabet with a quick tour around the island of Catanduanes. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh... I have a further point about this uh, colonial subjects, but if you want to get to the second block quote that I can see there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So he, uh, right after this cites the preamble to the actual decree, 
which states pretty clearly the purpose of the registration. In view of the extreme usefulness and practicality of this measure, the time has come to issue a directive for the formation of a civil register, which in brackets he put formerly a clerical function, which may not only fulfill and ensure the set objectives, but may also serve as the basis for the statistics of the country, guarantee the collection of taxes, the regular performance of personal services, and the receipt of payment for exemptions. It likewise provides exact information of the movement of the population, thus avoiding unauthorized migrations, hiding taxpayers, and other abuses. Yeah, so it's pretty clear that this is a way to make the, the population of colonialized subjects legible to for exploitation. Right. And so I've recently been doing some work with sort of early African-American literature. Okay. Uh, in particular, uh, the... The interesting narrative of the life of Equiano and also some work with uh, a poet, a poetess named Phyllis Wheatley. And in both texts, the and in both sort of texts and story of these people's lives, the story of the names is important. We actually don't know what Phyllis Wheatley's original real name was. Because when she arrived in Boston, she was given the last name of the man who bought her, right? Okay. And her first name was the name of the slave ship she was on. Interesting. Which, which to me sounds monstrous, right? Because that is yeah. one of the most traumatic experiences in a human being's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and Equiano is o- Olauda? Yes, him. Okay. Him. Yeah. Uh, Equiano, he got his name. Uh, he in the story it talks about how at one point he actively tried to resist being given a new name, and was beaten for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not just colonial. Well, it's difficult because do you consider African slaves who were brought to America to be colonial subjects or not? They probably are, but in this case, it was a colonial subject of property. Right. Right. And so marking them with your last name was a way of showing that I own this human being. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a sort of similar story to Kunta Kente? I think I think he resisted getting a, a new name as well. A lot of them did. Yeah. A lot of them did. Uh, I think it, I want to say it was CR. It was either CRL James or Ibram X Kendi or another uh, sort of more critical black thinker who mentioned that uh, if you look at like the Hegelian master slave thing, the idea of the master slave thing is that the slave chooses submission over death, Mm -hmm. but that's not exactly accurate to what a lot of slaves did. There was a lot of resistance. Yeah. And another, um, I think he, he mentions it briefly, but I'm surprised he doesn't go into more detail, but he also mentions, uh, you know, immigrants going through Ellis Island to the U.S. were also given, they were given new surnames, but also they were given like more English sounding first names. Yeah, because that way you can actually say it and saying it is part of that legibility. It's like the most yeah. literal interpretation. Right, exactly. So uh, more on this uh, Filipino census. Yeah. Um, Scott notes that it, cost uh 20 around 20,000 pesos 
but they justified the costs based on an expected future value. So this is like an early form of capitalization. Um, I was going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of 100,000 uh, to 200,000 pesos of continuing revenue. Yeah. Um, and Claveria came up with a new strategy to make surnames stick. He enlisted school teachers to enforce the behavior of children referring to or even knowing one another by their assigned surname. So they were supposed to correct them if um, they referred to each other with, you know, their their real names. Yeah. Um, and children or teachers who didn't obey the directive were punished. And while this would probably become more effective in other contexts, like I'm thinking residential schools probably did the same thing. Um, oh, almost certainly, considering that they didn't allow them to speak their own language. Right. Um, but in the in the Philippines, the level of schooling, I should put schooling, not education, um, was, was not very high. So the more important uh, enforcement mechanism, according to Scott, was that all official documents were required to use the official surname. Um, so anytime you interacted with the state, you would have to use your, your given surname. Oh God. I wish I had, um, dug up the old Graber paper that I saw this in, but, uh, Graber mentions at one point that when he was working in his anthropological work in Madagascar, which was another colonial subject, getting like people's names or things that officials would come and ask for was the hardest thing to do. Because he was an outsider, and that's what outsiders normally were looking for. Right. Makes sense. I wonder why he needed their name, though. Like, It, it might have just been him being interested. Yeah. I'm not sure, though. I'll, I'll have to find that again someday. Hmm. Um, so what... Uh, this is funny to me. What Claveria didn't foresee was that uh, changing everyone's names didn't help very much if the registration officials didn't make a diligent effort to record their real names. So, like, they changed all these people's names, but then they forgot to, like, write down what their actual name was. So they basically had no idea what belonged to whom before the, the survey happened. <laughs> As you get further on in the book, you will notice this sort of making this fatal oversight is a consistent theme. <laughs> It's a brief moment of oh fuck we didn't think of that yep <laughs> uh so he says many groups of people had fixed surnames assigned in the late 19th century throughout europe uh including french and austrian jews and u.s immigrants that's like the only point he mentions u.s immigrants and uh, i yep. would also add uh emancipated black slaves for example 90 percent of people with the surname washington in the u.s are black because a lot of uh, slaves and descendants of slaves uh, took that name. Yeah, yeah. I, I was actually about to about to make a point. A point of I wonder if that was them choosing a name or them being given one. Uh, both. I think. Yeah. A lot of them chose it because it like sort of represented their freedom, like they were like a free man, you know. Um, yeah. The- America has always had this very wide vocabulary of, of symbols of freedom from the revolutionary period, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's also why a lot of descendants of slaves are named Freeman as well, because they're free men now. So they chose that as their surname. Fair enough. Um, and the last point 
Scott makes is that as important as permanent surnames were um, to identifying people, modern technology has advanced quite a bit beyond that. So even if even if we somehow got rid of surnames, uh, there would still be uh, birth certificates, ID numbers, passports, photos, fingerprints, numbered addresses, and DNA profiles. Uh, yeah, it assists the state in finding out those particular individuals. Right. I would also point out that this is part of what makes sort of like part of being trans that a lot of my friends have mentioned is that getting your name changed on all these official documents is very hard, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are actually not just one center where all of these official sort of legibility things are stored. Like you need to get it changed by the government. You also need to get it changed by your university, by your workplace, by paypal x y yep by paypal and so two of my friends still can't use their real names with paypal they still have the official name in there and they like can't get it changed and like just point out that can be highly traumatic where Mm -hmm. a dead name can cause a lot of old trauma to come flooding back Mm -hmm. right and so that's that's an interesting point of that the all of these legibility things are all built towards a particular type of person Right. And if we didn't have a state around, it would be fairly easy to change your name. Just get people to start calling you a different thing. <laughs> yeah, except it'd be easy, except for the dickweeds that we already have to deal with. Right. But it would be only them. That's that's the point. <laughs> yeah, there'd be less state enforced to dickweedery. <laughs> So the next section is about standardized language. And before I even started reading this chapter, it made me immediately think of the 2000 movie, uh, 2002 movie, uh, Ying Shong or hero, which was, you know, a, a Jet Li movie about the empire of Qin. And in the movie, the emperor of Qin um, is being told the story uh, by the nameless protagonist of how he caught these three famous outlaws. And at one point he's talking about a uh, broken sword who was hiding in a, like a calligraphy school. And in order to get close to him, the protagonist had broken sword, write him a scroll uh, with the word sword on it. But, he said there were 20 different ways to write the word sword in Chinese and the protagonist wanted the 21st way. And so he did this in order to understand the art of his swordsmanship. So to him, like the way he wrote it would represent how he thinks of swordsmanship. But the emperor of Qin, when he heard this uh, was immediately shocked and was like, how can anyone understand each other when there are so many different ways to say the same thing? And so he vows that once he is united uh, China's kingdoms, he would create a single unified language with only a single way to write sword. So isn't, isn't like there are like hundreds of Chinese dialects, but they only have a single language or single written script? Um, I mean, there's a bunch of different writing systems. Um, okay. Yeah, there's, I mean, just the the two main ones are traditional and simplified, which are 
yeah two completely different writing systems there's all there's also like a more like ancient version of it and i I was thinking of like the difference between mandarin and cantonese um yeah i think they share a writing system but i think that was probably due to state efforts uh throughout history absolutely yeah absolutely yeah uh but starting the actual chapter Local languages were an even more powerful barrier to outside control than difficult terrain was and contained even more cultural context. So, you know, like a city does contain cultural context um, in a sense, but language like shapes the way that you just think about things. Um, It contains like a shared identity, a shared mythology, uh, shared history, and art forms uh that are kind of embedded in it and dependent on it absolutely and, uh visiting officials needed local interpreters even if like they could find their way around the city they still wouldn't be able to understand the local dialects so the simplification of language into a single non-dialectal dial i almost said dialectical um <laughs> single non-dialectal standard was one of the most powerful changes made to control large populations Although so, it should be noted that uh, the the process of creating legibility is a profoundly non-dialectical process. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so the first step that Scott talks about is the requirement that legal documents be written in an official language. So in his example, and in much of the world, it was French. So prior to this, even in what we now call France, there were uh like in you know china during the emperor of chin's conquest there were multiple kingdoms and they all had multiple languages so there was uh breton gallo Occitan, corsican and like i think like a dozen other languages and a lot of these were used on legal documents and this is also pointing out like um there's an issue in canada with natives and like legality because of course the canadian state just (laughs) violently oppresses natives every chance it gets but the fact that like official state documents from courts have to be written in english or french and not in say their language right instead of the languages of the indigenous native populations is part of colonialization Mm -hmm. and do they do they have a writing system because i know a lot of languages don't uh they're I don't know if they do. I do know that uh, oral history is a lot more important for them. Mm-hmm. And I know that up north uh, in the in the Inuit, and I think a few other northern indigenous groups use a syllabic one developed by a priest to write the Bible. Hmm. Okay. And it's actually a kind of cool one because like it, you have like yeah, certain I think I've seen symbols. Yeah, and it depend and like the way you the vowel in the syllable is dependent on which way you've rotated it because it has four vowels, so you have four rotations. Huh. Which is really cool. Oh yeah, I just looked it up. It it does look very cool. Yeah. Um, I also know like language nerd. <laughs> uh, the Ainu had no written language, uh, but I think after the Meiji Restoration, they uh they adopted katakana as their writing system. And they actually added two letters to it because they have two consonants that don't exist in Japanese. That's really cool. I I know very little about the Ainu other than that. They were sort of a, they are an indigenous uh, 
indigenous population in in northern Hokkaido, I think. Yeah, Hokkaido, Sakhalin, um, and one other place that I can't remember. And yeah. uh, th- like the very northern part of Honshu as well, I think, uh, at one point. Oh, okay. Um, cool. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, so the, they've required legal documents to be written in French. Um, and he also compares this um, either in the text or in the footnotes to um, the use of Latin for official documents like long before that. Yeah. In the Roman Empire. Uh, I don't think he specifically said the Roman Empire, but um, it was certainly an artifact of that. Um, and so he points out that a sh- the shift in language marked a shift in power from local guides and interpreters to lawyers, notaries, teachers, and clerks who would all know French and the vagaries of the, um, you know, the legal system and the bureaucracy and all that. Yeah. And it also marked a shift in culture to a more national or global one from, uh, parochial community cultures to, uh, as he says, Voltaire, Racine, who's Jean Racine. I didn't know who that was. It's a he's a French playwright, um, and also Parisian newspapers and a national education. And as he puts it, the logic of the move was to create a hierarchy of cultures, relegating local languages and their regional cultures to, at best, a quaint provin- provincialism. At the apex of this implicit pyramid was Paris and its institutions, ministries, schools, academies including the guardian of the language, l'Académie Française, which we don't have that in English, but in, in French, they have like an official version of the language that is enforced by this Académie Française. It's actually not as uncommon for European languages to have those. I think Portuguese and Spanish also have lang- uh, academies of the language. Interesting. Yeah, so English is, I guess, one of the only ones without it. The penultimate section is about centralized traffic patterns, which I originally had a question mark on the heading because it was such a weird, abrupt shift. Um, So another component of the transformation of the various regions of uh, France, uh, what we now know as France, into the nation of France, was the shift from a network of roads with no particular hub to like a radial pattern of roads and rails with Paris as the hub which made it easier for state officials to travel to and from the various regions outside of Paris from, you know, where they were located, which was Paris. And uh, it also made them more legible. And Scott here quotes Weber on old forms of roads, who said uh, they roads served professional pursuits like the special trails followed by glassmakers, carriers or sellers of salt, potters or those that led to forges mines quarries and hemp fields by the way uh or (laughs) those along which flax hemp linen and yarn were taken to market there were pilgrimage routes and procession trails and that's from peasants into frenchmen um and he says after the shift in road and rail construction traffic which was formerly direct and specialized by function uh like he just described was now forced into the administratively efficient pattern of the uh, spoken hub that we are now familiar with. So, like, the example that I immediately thought of was 
how if you fly anywhere in the U.S. from to or from the East Coast, uh, you're almost certainly going to pass through Atlanta uh, yeah. because it's a hub used by all the important airlines. So while it would obviously be more technically efficient to travel from Dulles Airport straight to Dallas-Fort Worth, in practice, it's far more common and even cheaper to travel from Dulles to Atlanta to Dallas-Fort Worth. Right. And this is something that's happening without a physical road. Right. Right. So, yeah. so you don't this even is, have to do it. <laughs> this is about organization. This is not about like the physical well, organization, but not as much about the physical concrete structures. Right. And I just want to point out that he has a, uh, if you look at f- figure 12 on page 75, he uh there's this interesting point that that's made by the figure that like this also had the property of making distances between points outside of the center like between uh-huh. two rural points further apart right right in effect because you had to go to paris and then come back or something like that um i don't know if you saw like there's that stupid tower with the hole in it that's like a big meme right now um oh god that yeah someone <laughs> pointed out like they they put a blue dot on one of the like columns on the corner red. and a red yeah. dot on another column and we're like uh you were at the blue dot you have a meeting at the red dot you have two minutes to get there and you basically have to like go all the way down to the bottom floor and then go all the way back up to the red dot <laughs> Jeez, which sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you have to go up, like, how the hell are you going to get up the, t- sorry to go off topic, but how the hell are you supposed to get up like those sort of, you know, how there's like the diagonal bits? Yeah. Like, do you have to get into multiple elevators? I don't Is know the if elevator they thought of that. Moving diagonally? <laughs> it doesn't seem like they did. Or, or are we just trying to get everybody swole by making everyday leg day? It, I mean honestly kind of looks like like the someone's first nerbs project uh if you don't know what that is it's a type of 3d modeling that uses like all splines instead of like (laughs) polygon modeling which uses like a grid of points um and you can create like weird surfaces like that very easily um but i i don't know if they really thought of like hmm i wonder if this is practical for people to actually use I, I, I do remember one of the replies to that it. to that tweet was like, "These motherfuckers need to invent teleportation before they start making buildings like this." <laughs> <laughs> it, and, and it also makes me wonder about, um, like, how the wind would affect it. Yeah. My my favorite uh, one that I saw was uh, a plane flying t- toward the building, and then going through it, and it was like, "Everyone's safe. No more nine elevens." <laughs> Oof. <laughs> uh, so Scott continues uh, saying the French administrators who were recreating the uh, road networks were like even more obsessed with geometric perfection than um, like Houseman and the other planners. Yeah. So he says uh, the first phase of the grid, the line from Paris east to Strasbourg and the frontier ran straight through the plateau of Brie rather than following the centers of population along the Marne, which I'm guessing is a river. Um, Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. By refusing to conform to the topography in its quest of geometric perfection, 
the railway line was ruinously expensive compared to English or German railroads. The army had also adopted the Ponce Chose logic, believing that direct rail lines to the borders would be militarily advantageous. They were proven tragically wrong in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 71. Wait, didn't the Prussians just use, that's when the Prussians just used the uh, rail line to go straight into Paris, isn't it? I think you're probably right, yeah. (laughs) This is why you got to do what Russia does and just make sure that you always have your train lines run on just a different grade. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that's another point is like standardization of grades or shipping containers is part of it. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to get to it later, but uh, that that is one of the big uh, innovations that led to like the globalization of trade today is standardized shipping containers. Yeah. Even if they don't hold as much stuff, um, they're just so much easier to manage because they're all just boxes of exactly the same size. Right. And so not only is it stackable, it's also that the machinery that you have to build to move it can all can always like know exactly what it's going to be picking up. Once again, the point of uh, that they're even more obsessed with geometric perfect perfection. Once again, all these people just want to fuck geometry. <laughs> So he has a conclusion section here because I think this is the end of the first part, just uh, two chapters. Um, so this is like kind of a wrap up of uh, everything so far. So I, I guess even if you didn't listen to the first chapter, then this kind of covers some of it. Yeah. Um, so he says administrators of a society are. Oh, no, he doesn't say that. I do. OK, uh, <laughs> sorry. Administrators of a society are several steps and increasingly far from the society they intend to govern. In fact, as their power increases, they will uh, they necessarily will be, because as the population governed by a single state increases, the number of hierarchical levels between the populace and the administrators that rule them has to increase as well in order to simplify the social life of the administrators. If um, without like all these hierarchical levels, uh, administrators would have to manage like you know, thousands or millions of people, which is obviously pretty impossible. It's not going to happen. Yeah. But with hierarchy, um, they get like a exponential level of control, um, by having lo- more localized officials, um, that report to, you know, regional officials that report to national officials that report to them and so on. Yep. Um, so if there were a single hierarchy governing all 7.5 billion people on Earth, there would have to be at least 10 levels of hierarchy from the lowest class to the highest. And that would that would mean that um, each administrator deals with 10 people, which actually not that many levels of hierarchy. But uh, if yeah. you decrease the number of people they have to deal with, then obviously there's going to be more levels. Yeah. Um, otherwise... You know, they would have to, like I said, deal with far more people than they're capable of socially recognizing. So not only for the reasons listed listed in the chapter of like not being familiar with uh, uh, local cultures and languages and all that stuff, but b- 
because of social and cognitive limitations. Administrators being out of touch from the people that they're governing is like inextricable from the practice of administration itself. Yeah, um, it's like that uh, Bakunin quote, right? Uh, it is the, it is the, what is it? Oh, it's the trait and it is a trait of every privileged position to kill the heart and soul in man. In man. Uh, any man who is privileged either economically or politically is a man depraved in heart and intellect. That's cool. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, it's from uh, it's from God in the State when okay. he's talking about exact, almost exactly this sort of idea of scientifically organizing society. I haven't actually read any Bakunin, so I say I haven't heard that quote. I haven't really heard any quotes from him. <laughs> Bakunin's good. You just have to uh, watch out for his opinions on certain things. Right. Well, I think that applies to most of the early anarchists actually <laughs> yes yes it does <laughs> um and uh yeah also like I, I think it's a pretty common trope to like point out like how out of touch nancy pelosi is for example but like oh yeah all politicians are out of touch that is like they have to be part of being a politician yeah you simply can't know what's going on in the ground because that's not the reality that you occupy. And I think one of the, one of the issues with, with electoralism as a strategy is like, even if someone starts off as like, you know, an AOC who's, you know, a centrist basically. Um, but even if they start off that way, like the, um, practice of like doing the job of politician for years, will turn you into more of a Nancy Pelosi than you started as. Um, exactly. Just because the, that's, um, that's the position you occupy. It, yeah. You, the, the position will shape you more than you shape the position because the position like is shaped mostly by the it's because the position is shaped mostly by its position in the overall hierarchy of the state. Right. I yeah. I mean like the needs, word. the needs and functions of the position and like the powers that they have are, you know, already predetermined basically. Yeah. Especially under like a liberal state where the constitution or the, the written laws are what is seen as paramount. Right. And there was that whole thing, uh, recently, uh, between the, the Jimmy door people and, <sighs> the AOC people where yeah you know the Jimmy Dore people wanted AOC to to force a vote on Medicare for all and you know the AOC people were like oh that wouldn't do anything but um you know first of all uh, I hate both parties <laughs> I, I was about to say fuck <laughs> all both assholes. of them <laughs> y'all uh, are assholes fuck you both do it yourself <laughs> but I, but I do think it's funny that they're sort of like they're already making excuses for not doing something. And I think that's going to become increasingly common. And by, you know, 2024, I think uh, a huge chunk of those people are going to be, you know, Democrat sheepdogs. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's this, there's this idea in some of, so I, I recently decided to be a masochist and read some Lenin. <laughs> Don't do that. Oh, it's I think we both did it. that at the same time. Yeah, were we were so, we talking about it in the reading channel? Yeah, I think we were. I think State we were. Rev, I, right? Yeah, that was a little while back. Uh, yeah, like just just like two or three days ago, I think I read um, left wing communism. Oh, god. Yeah. Oof. 
anyway reading, reading left-wing communism and infantile disorder and infantile disorder <laughs> pretty much uh and and lenin basically argues that oh people will get disillusioned with electoralism and turn to us when like the labor party fails in the uk but now people just stick their heels in into these parties because they they continue to see that that glimmer of quote unquote good in people like Sanders or AOC where they have the right rhetoric. Right. Yeah, and I mean if they if they fail one way then the strategy just becomes do it a different way. Not use exactly. a different strategy but do electoralism differently. Right because they still think of of people in these quote unquote positions of power actually having power when in reality it's almost the system that has power over them yeah in a certain sense mm -hmm. um okay so to get to what scott actually says here um yeah uh scott i i didn't really like this part he sort of hems and haws about whether the state interventions are necessarily bad as because they could like technically be used and sometimes are used to introduce interventions for the public welfare so he gives vaccines as an example, which like, um, I mean, a, a pretty basic anti-civ critique of this is like most of the diseases that uh, people get and that are yeah. uh, treated by vaccines or prevented by, by vaccines rather are uh, one zoonotic. So they come from being in close proximity to animals, yep. which happens because of agriculture and two, uh, they spread more easily because of rapid, uh, because of dense populations and uh, rapid, like muting and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like basically, like planes. the conditions of of urbanism are like a huge cause of disease and pandemic disease, especially. Yeah. Um, but like, let's be clear. Uh, Scott is not an anarchist. Scott is. Right a liberal who is anarchist adjacent yeah he's a as as i noted in the first episode he is a liz warren liberal <laughs> yeah um as he also gives the example of the cdc discovering previously unknown conditions like toxics toxic shock syndrome and legionnaires disease um he argues that a map produced in the netherlands under nazi occupation that identified the regions of Amsterdam by the prevalence of Jewish people uh, could have been used to feed the Jews as easily as it was used to deport them, which I really didn't like that. Well, um, because like the big thing is, is that when the deportation occurred, it was targeting specifically Jews. If you are targeting Jews specifically to feed them, there's something like. Yeah, that's also weird. Why? <laughs> why do you need to do that? Yeah. Uh, I I will put a slight word in for sort of engaging in legibility as a theoretical practice, not like imposing it on people, obviously, because uh, that is imposing it on people is obviously bad. Right. But like a lot of the time you can get a lot more, you can get a deeper analysis by focusing just on one thing. Like if you're doing political economy, you kind of bracket away certain questions in order to focus in particular on how does the economy work? Well, uh, we don't really like political economy on the show, so I don't think that's really an advantage. 
to be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would. Once again, I should have my Graeber in front of me, but Graeber at one point talks about it in one of his essays on, I think, structuralism and superheroes, that if you sort of for a moment just focus on one particular thing, you can get a deeper understanding of it. But you do have to always remember to step back and take a look at the actual human beings behind it. Mm-hmm. Right? Cause these, Is that from these the sim- Utopia of Rules? I think it's from Utopia of Rules. I think okay. that essay is in Utopia of Rules. I know he talks about superheroes in that. Yeah, but I haven't. I haven't read some of his newer books. So, yeah. I, in general, I think that one of the big problems with these state simplification things is a lot of the time it reduces people down to just numbers on a page. Right. And as such, doing horrible shit to them becomes easier to justify. Yeah. Um. Like an example of that that he gives is uh, unemployment statistics. And in the end notes, he talks about how like that's necessarily a simplification, um, whether someone is employed or not. And the example he gives is like someone who works only for family members occasionally and doesn't get paid, but is like fed by them and or like allowed to use some of their land. Yeah. It's not really employment in the strict sense, but it's also not really unemployment in the strict sense. Yep. Um, so yeah, the information has to be reduced. Um, so he, he gives like a general, um, set of characteristics that these state legibility simplifications have. So one, they are observations of social fact, social facts, that are of official interest to the state. So only facts that they are interested in, which is what you were just talking about. Yep. Uh, two, they are documented, that is, or documentary, that is, they are written into records. Three, they are static. Um, and that was something that we covered in quite a bit of detail in the first episode was the changing uh, property rights that yep. villages had. Um, that yeah. were frozen in time by cadastral mapping. Uh, four, they are usually aggregations, so they're they're concerned with things on a statistical level and not, um, you know, the individual data points necessarily. Yep. And five, they are standardized. Um, so that's kind of the reduction of of categories into like employment and unemployment and and so forth. Well, and so and, oh, good. Uh, I was just going to point out. The third point there that they are static is a bit more, it's not that they are in initially static, it's that these measurements are designed to be static, right? Yeah. Which can impose on a person's life, can impose stasis onto a person's life. Right. Right. Sorry, I just bit into a liquor chocolate. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, so he says there is thus a general process to the creation of these facts. Um, so first, a standardized unit of measurement is created to classify the facts, such as categories of trees. That's the very first example he gives. Yep. Um, then the real, more complex facts are counted into the categorical simplification. So he takes like all these different sizes of trees and puts them into the categories. Yep. Um, then, I didn't really understand this one. He says... Each fact must be recuperated and brought back on stage, as it were, dressed in a new uniform of official weave. 
Do you understand that one? Uh, I'm guessing that previously established information must be rephrased or reframed in terms of the new information. Okay. That makes sense. Right. This is why I'm bad at reading. Like anytime someone decides to use flowery language, I'm just like, what are you, what, what, what are you talking about? I've, I've had to read Speak English. <laughs> first, I've had to read queer theorists and German idealists. You eventually get used oh, God. to, Oh, I just need to read this three times. <laughs> um, and then the last step is uh, the facts are aggregated and transformed into new synoptic facts that are useful to administrators. And uh, he notes finally that uh, even though they are, these are simplifications in the strict sense, they're still pretty sophisticated. They're simplified in the sense that they ignore real distinctions that aren't of interest to the administrators. Uh, but they're sim- f- sophisticated in the sense that they are created using specialized and advanced methods for, you know, observing these facts from afar. Yeah. Uh, give me two seconds. I'm just checking to see if he cites Foucault. Because uh, Foucault makes the point that knowledge and power are not really separable. Right. And so, uh, Power relations always imply a a um, knowledge uh, knowledge relation, and knowledge relations always imply a power relation. These these uh, simplifications aren't. Yeah, he does at some points. He he mentions Foucault okay. at several points, and so these these simplifications aren't just benign, right? Like against what he was saying about the oh god, I, I hate it. The the maps of the Jews in the in what was it the Netherlands? Yeah. Uh, like that map would not have been made if the Nazis had not been in power. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I, one time I was working in a, uh, family history society here. And at one point I came across a book that was labeled the Jews of the Island. Right. Uh-huh. And like, it was from 1939. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and I was just looking at it like, why do we need this? Right. Like, because there are a couple reasons why you could. It's a relatively small island, so maybe it was uh, just an actual local Jew trying to figure out where all of where all the other Jews were, so that it was easier to interact with them. Yeah, or it was more sinister, or it was just the government. Well, I, I say, or it was more sinister, or it was the government, or it was more sinister because it was the government. Uh, <laughs> but like you can't separate the produ- the production of this knowledge from what it was intended to do right yeah and um i i don't personally have the level of knowledge needed to like make this argument well um but i have read um points from young neocon friend of the show yeah who has talked about how anti-semitism is sort of the glue that holds capitalist society together and like resolves its uh, a lot of its contradictions and so like just the idea of a state producing a map of jews without it being anti-semitic is like incomprehensible yeah yeah jew um oh god what was the line from satra if the jew did not exist the anti-semite would have to invent him yeah it it is uh anti-semitism is definitely the 
is part is a major chunk of white supremacy. And I think that we can't really separate capitalism from from white supremacy. Right. Right. Uh, especially with like the global order of of quote unquote economics. Right. Right. I, I, sh- I should clarify when I say economics, what I really mean is like the organization of physical things, just because that's like the only version that makes any sense to me, as well as the fact that um, it also helps resolve contradictions and that pushes people right, which tends to, if not preserve capital C capitalism, it tends to preserve capitalist power, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't... Th- and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there has been a fascist dictatorship that has not um, preserved capitalist power. It may have been non-capitalist, but it has always preserved capitalist power. Right. Um, so he he's citing Postone. I found one of the posts. He says, as Postone argues, anti-Semitism emerging later was imminent in capitalism, especially in its liberal democratic form because it was the preferred means to resolve the contradictions between capitalism's ideology and its actual base and contradictions. Okay. It's a very long thread, so I won't be able to like read all of it, but um, I'll, I'll actually include it in the uh, show description so that people can read it uh, yeah. in case they're yeah, interested. It, it's, uh, Foucault also made a point that uh, every state is innately racist because it mm-hmm. has to classify people into ruly and unruly, right? In again, yeah. this sort of legibility simplification system. Yeah, and when I finally get to the Golden Kamui episode, I will also be making the argument that all states are fundamentally dependent on ethnic cleansing. Um, You're not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> either either by outright conquering and like killing yeah. uh, indigenous populations, or by forcibly assimilating them. Or deporting them, or a combination of all of those. Literally um, cleaning up the ethnic composition. Right. And, By um, any means. That's uh, that's obviously what happened to the Ainu. Um, one of the things that made me really think about this was the fact that uh, Shogun, which is the position, like the um, highest military position in yeah. Edo Japanese society, uh, comes from the term Sei Tai Shogun which means great barbarian conquering general. So it was like the, the huh. king of ethnic cleansing, essentially. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, uh, yeah. As a point about that, that for listeners about the, every state is racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who's done some excellent work on that is Falguni chef uh, in her work towards a political, the- uh, towards a political philosophy of race. Okay. Uh, where she goes through um, sort of the production of race by the U.S. by the U.S. government towards um, mostly like East Indian and Asian groups. Did you have anything else to add? I would just point out that uh, Scott's work sort of meshes very well with a more radical anthropologist of David Graeber. Um, mm-hmm. If you read Graeber's work, especially on bureau- bureaucracy or uh, dead zones of the imagination, I think is one of the papers where he goes over it in a bit more detail about how 
there is violence inherent in not just the creation of these uh, legible systems, but also in their continuance. Cool. Do you have anything you want to plug, Sam, before we go? Not yet. I'm, I'm working on starting to produce content, but nothing yet. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, I think I'm just going to keep going with this series until uh, until it's done. I might take a break like halfway through, but uh, I think this is a pretty easy format to do. So uh, it's very convenient for me. And uh, Sam, if you want to come back for another one, uh, you're more than welcome. I would love to. Mostly to talk about how the Cobicier wanted to fuck straight lines. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.